My wife Cindy is one of those persons who, if you're watching a murder mystery with her, five minutes into the show, a plumber walks across in the background of the show and she says, that's the guy. He's the one that did it. It takes all the mystery out of the murder for me because if you don't have the superpowers that Cindy has and actually have to wait for the whole show to figure out who it is that's going to be the bad guy, it's a little bit disconcerting. But it's good writing, isn't it? Luke is a good writer. And he's actually, he's actually used this technique not once but twice. We are introduced, first of all, back in chapter 4 to a guy. We are told there that the people of Israel, the, the, the early Christians, were uh, caring for everyone by selling everything they had and, and sharing it with each other. And then in a very little cryptic verse, we read a man named Joseph, uh, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostle called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He, owned, he sold a, a lot that he owned and took the money and brought it to the apostles and put it at their feet. And then he disappears from the story. Ah, but not so fast. This happens a a second time. We are reading about Stephen. And he is being carried out by a mob to the outside of the city walls. And he's about to be stoned. And as it is taking place, we read that the witnesses laid their, their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. You remember that? And then you turn to the beginning of of chapter 8, and we read on that day, uh, and we read verse 1, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So we are introduced very briefly to this young man named Saul, who's carrying out a kind of a one-man wrecking crew against the early church. Uh, and, And again, though, he suddenly disappears. So after having made these cameo appearances of Barnabas and Saul, they kind of, they just go away. And we think perhaps that's the last of them. Ah, but not so. Because Luke is about to weave them back. They're both about to make their way back onto the stage of history in a way that will be very inspiring and very captivating. So I want to tell you this morning about one of the most exciting and certainly perhaps the most important Christian conversion that ever occurred. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be shown what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, 
But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. There was in Damascus a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called out to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has been told that a man named Ananias will come to him and lay hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to the saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before all the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias went to the house and entered in. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And taking some food, he began to regain his strength. Saul spent many days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues, Jesus is the Son of God. And all who heard him asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all who call on this name? And didn't he come here to lead them as prisoners back to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful. And he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Every day and night, they, they put a close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he could really be a disciple. Then Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly. In the name of Jesus. 
So Paul, so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He taught and debated with the Grecian Jews, and they tried to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they took Saul down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged in the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. This is a story that comes from God's holy word. It comes from the book of Acts, chapter 9. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. We thank you for this story. We thank you for Saul. We thank you most of all for Jesus who would not let him go. And we pray, Jesus, that you might appear to us in the same way. That we might know your grace and your power and your call upon our lives this day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you to pick one doctrine unique to the Christian faith... What might that doctrine be? Would it be love? Jewish faith teaches of the love of God, doesn't it? Would it be justice? Allah is apparently all about justice. No, the one doctrine that is unique to Christian faith is the doctrine of grace. Would you say that? Grace. Say it again. It is the sweetest word in the Christian faith. Grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It is the undeserved kindness of God that is poured out upon us. Grace is way more than mercy. You must understand that. Mercy is simply not getting what we have coming to us. Mercy is simply withholding the punishment that is due us. But grace is more than that. Grace not only withholds the punishment that is due, but rather pours out kindness, goodness. Grace is the... the, the initiating act of, of God in love. God looks up, down upon us in our rebellion. And in his love, we are told, he sent his son to save us. But grace is way more than that. He doesn't just barely save us by the skin of our teeth. Then he pours his Holy Spirit into us. He gifts us. He empowers us. He calls us to serve him. It is an incredible thing, the kind, generous profligate grace of God. If you think of it in these terms, if, if a mama tells her kid, you're not going to have a cookie, don't you dare take a cookie jar, I'm going to give you a spanking if you do. And the kid goes to the cookie jar, pulls out a cookie, and, she, and he gets discovered. If mama chooses to withhold the spanking, it may be bad parenting, but it would be mercy. But if mama goes back to the cookie jar, opens it up, takes another cookie, and gives it. That is grace. Utterly undeserved kindness poured out upon us. And you can hardly find a more grace-filled chapter than Acts 9. For in it we see three examples of this incredible gift of grace. First of all, we find the grace of Jesus. Luke has already portrayed Saul... As a ruthless enemy of the, of the church. First of all, we find him guarding the robes of the assassins who are going to dash in Stephen's heads with, with, with rocks. 
We are told that they laid their clothes down and, and Saul was watching them and that he gave approval of his death. Now just pause there for a moment. He watched as this young man is being stoned to death and he was nodding his head up and down. Perhaps saying, yes, that's right. He has it coming to him. Kill the heretic. That is good. It is a brutal first introduction to this man. And Stephen's death just primes Saul's pump because he goes on a one-man vendetta. He is a wrecking crew against the, the early church. And he's finding and arresting and dragging them off to prison. Ah, but getting the Jews, the Christians in Jerusalem is not enough for him. He knows that some of them have escaped his dragnet. And so he goes to the high priest for what was essentially extradition orders. And he's going to make his way up to Damascus 135 miles away where some of those Christians might have snuck off because he's not going to let a single one of those heretics escape righteous judgment. He's going to drag them back. He is ruthless. And when you read the Greek, you get an even more vivid picture of how ruthless this man was. For instance, in chapter 8, verse 3, we are told that he began to destroy the church. You know what the word there means? It is the word that is used for a wild animal that is ravaging the body of its victim with its fangs. And, and then when it says that he raised havoc in Jerusalem, the word there literally can be translated mauled. Mauled. It is animalistic rage. He is ravaging them with his with his fangs, he is mauling them with his talons. This, this is the image that we get of an animal. He is obsessed. He is fanatical. He views the Christians as a disease to be wiped out. Can you think of a modern equivalent of such rage? Of course you can. A couple of weeks ago, we saw this. Show me the slide, please. Thank you. A couple of weeks ago, we saw this. 21 Ethiopian Christians who are being led to their torture and ultimately to their beheading on the shores of Libya because they will not deny the name of Jesus. If you want to catch a glimpse of what the eyes of Saul look like, look into these eyes. That's what we see. So off he goes on his murderous mission and suddenly he is knocked down to the ground by a lightning bolt captured in this famous painting of the, of the moment. And you think, aha! If you're reading this for the first time, you would say, finally, he's going to get his comeuppance. This is his moment of judgment. This wretched man who has been mauling and ravaging the early church. Jesus is going to get him. He's going to have the last word. Well, he does have the last word, doesn't he? But it is not a word of vengeance. It is not a word of judgment. It is a word of grace. Listen to the tenderness of the question. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? Not only does Jesus not slay Saul, he calls Saul. He leads him into the city where he will receive his marching orders and this butcher of Jerusalem will become the greatest evangelist the world has ever known. That is grace. That is grace. But that's just the first glimpse that we get of it. The next glimpse we get is perhaps the greatest unsung hero in the New Testament. 
Ananias of Damascus. What an incredible man he was. Jesus appears to him with this outrageous instruction. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. That street still exists today. And you're going to ask for this man named Saul of Tarsus. And and Ananias is quite certain that the Lord must not be keeping up on, on current events. Lord, I've heard many reports about this guy. And the harm he is doing to the saints in Jerusalem. Surely you've got the wrong Saul. There's a lot of them in Damascus. You've got the wrong one, right? Nope. The Lord says, no, that's my guy. This would be the equivalent of God telling one of us to go into Iraq and to find Jihad Johnny and tell him that Jesus has sent us to lay hands on you and pray for you. What do you think he would want to do with those hands that you laid on him to pray in the name of Jesus? How would you respond to the call? It was a suicide mission. But Jesus insists, he is my chosen instrument. And by him I will carry my name to the Gentiles and the Jews, even the kings of the Gentiles. And so, brave Ananias goes. And he enters the house. And he sees Saul, the persecutor, the imprisoner, perhaps the murderer of his friends. But now he sits silently, blindly, at the mercy of those around him. What must have been going through Ananias' head as he walked up to lay hands on Saul? Right? And yet we read these words. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. And Saul immediately is given his sight. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he gets up and is baptized into the Christian faith. I was reading this Thursday as I try to read it every day, which I hope you are doing as well. One of the things we're trying to learn about this 90-day journey is to dig deeper, to read it again. And what, one way to do that is to read it out loud. I urge you to read the text out loud several times. And as I was reading it out loud, suddenly I came to two words that I, so overwhelmed me that I began to weep. Do you know what the two words are? Brother Saul. Brother Saul. I had tears coursing down my cheeks as I just, I spoke those words again and again. Brother Saul, there was nothing brotherly about Saul. He was an enemy of the church. But because of what Jesus had done in Saul and what Jesus had done in Ananias, the past was past. And Ananias could utter those supremely gracious and supremely unlikely words. My brother Saul, gracious Ananias. And there's one more glimpse that we get of grace, don't we? One more glimpse. The followers of Saul, and notice he already has followers, he couldn't help himself. The followers of Saul had to lower him, a rather ignominious departure from Damascus. They had to lower him in a basket so that he wouldn't get caught by the Jews who were out to kill him. Think about this just for a moment. The guy who intended to come in at the head of a, 
of a, an army of, 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 uh, of zealots and take the place by storm was instead led into Damascus by his hand and let out of Damascus at night from in a, in a laundry basket. A rather ignominious entry and departure from the city that he intended to take by storm. So he makes his way to Jerusalem. He wants to join the disciples and no one believes him. Right? They were all afraid of him. They, no one believed he could really. They thought it was a scam. He couldn't possibly be a Christian. This is just a trick. Another one of his tricks. Pastor Megan used to work when she was at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in the, um, in the, admit, in the admitting office. Admit, admissions office. Admissions office. And she tells me of the time that a, a, a Chinese woman came into her office and said she wanted to apply to come to seminary. And while she was talking, she said she was very interested in the other Chinese students. Wanted to know their names, where they were from, when they would be returning to China and so forth. Megan felt very uncomfortable about that. So she went back and talked to one of the Chinese students and she said, Oh yes, that is likely a spy from the government. Please be careful about giving our names or the names of the pastors back home because they're collecting all of this information to use on us when we return. It was a scam. And surely the disciples in Jerusalem must have felt the same thing. This is a scam. And so everyone ostracized this guy. Except for one man. The son of encouragement. And you begin to understand why the apostles gave him that nickname. Barnabas took him, advocated him for him. He believed him when no one else believed. He made his case in front of the apostles when no one else would do it. He told them of the remarkable way that God had met him. Christ had spoken to him. He had preached fearlessly in Damascus. It was, it was Barnabas who stepped up, who took the chance. Again, it was an incredible act of grace towards someone that everyone else held in suspicion and even contempt. Gracious Barnabas. I was reading this last week of a story that you might have seen. It was about a missionary who was in a dangerous part of the Middle East. And he got a call from a friend. And he wanted to get together. And so they met. But he was fr- the missionary, when he showed up, was surprised to discover his friend had brought along someone else. He was even more surprised to hear him introduce him. For the man he brought along was an ISIS warrior who had not only killed many Christians already, he would tell you himself he enjoyed killing Christians. Now, if you were uh, that missionary, I would feel like that was probably a pretty bad blind date, wouldn't you? And yet they continued the conversation. One of the Christians that this ISIS terrorist was about to kill said to him, I know you're going to kill me, but I would like to give you my Bible. The terrorist went ahead and killed the man, but he took the Bible, and he read it, and he began to have dreams. Dreams of a man in white who appeared to him saying, why are you killing my people? And then it got more specific. It was dreams of Jesus saying, follow me. And so, this terrorist who enjoyed killing Christians had come to this missionary to say, I want to be a Christian. Will you baptize me? And will you disciple me? This is the power of the grace of God. 
the amazing grace that saved a wretch like me and saved a wretch like you. It is unmerited favor. God has every right to judge us, to condemn us. But instead, he takes the punishment upon himself and his son and he saves his killers. It is grace offering kindness to those who despise you, loving your enemies, be kind to neighbors who are intolerable, forgiving, enduring, humiliating yourself. That is grace. It is taking risks on people that no one else is willing to take a risk on. And grace flies in the face of American religion. You must hear this. The favorite American religion is this. I will work hard. I will be good. I will be patriotic. I will observe all of the rules. I will earn God's favor. But the gracious Holy Spirit declares God loves you when you are wretched and putrid and foul. And he calls you to himself. He is not only ready to forgive you, he wants to fill you, to gift you, to send you out on his mission. And that is grace. No one else in the world offers it. Only Jesus Christ offers that. And only the disciples of Jesus Christ can offer that. Disciples like Saul. Disciples like Ananias. Disciples like Barnabas. Disciples like... And so I wonder on this day... Who the person is here who needs to be a dispenser of grace but has hitherto refused to do it. Perhaps like the disciples in Jerusalem, you are suspicious or you are angry or you are betrayed and you cannot imagine ever making peace, ever being reconciled. Like Ananias, like Ananias, would you be called by the voice of the Lord today to obey him and to go to some unlikely, unlovable person and lay your hands on them and say, I want you to be healed. healed. I want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the gift of God and I offer it to you. Brother Saul, sister Sarah, God wants you. Or are there some here this morning who, like Saul, need to receive God's grace? You are stricken by the decisions of your life. You realize that you've been on exactly the wrong path. You live with regret and shame. You are blinded by, to the possibility that God could ever love you. Certainly that he could ever use you. Whatever you have done. Whoever you are. Whatever your choices. It is never too much for the grace of Jesus. We, sh we studied this text Friday in my life group. It was one of the most powerful times we've had in months and months and months. Just the power of God's word as it struck us. And a little later on, I got a text from one of the businessmen who had been there. Here's what he said. He said, I wept when I got into my car after our group. I'm not sure why. I feel sadness about my past, and yet I feel a sense of happiness and blessing. What a chapter. It stirred me deeply. Does it stir you deeply? What a chapter. What a Savior. What a grace.